welcome back to the Transfers Uncovered podcast. Episode 2 coming up with me, Simon Watson, the experienced football agents, Phil Corklin and Brian Howard, who himself played more than 400 career matches as a professional. Both now run the agency Momentum Sports Management. Now, if you're joining us for this, I dare say there's a good chance that you also listen to episode 1. For that, we're, we're really genuinely so grateful. Hope you found it a decent listen. We've also had some really good interaction on Twitter this week, at TransfersPod. For those who've not followed us yet, I do have to let you into a bit of a trade secret though. We've had loads of questions for Phil and Brian, which has been absolutely awesome. However, because the guys are so busy and based in different parts of the country, we did actually meet and record all three episodes in one day. So what we do intend to do is meet up again as soon as the window closes and record another pod and do a Q&A with all of those questions if the two of them haven't had their brains fried by that stage with the number of calls that they've been taking all the way up to transfer deadline day. So enough from me anyway, let's crack on with the two people you really want to listen to, Brian and Phil on episode two, where we're going to look today at the loan market and recruitment departments, among other things. Well, welcome back to episode two of the Transfers Uncover podcast. Uh, lads, the landscape of football transfers, particularly for, for clubs in the EFL, changed quite dramatically, didn't it, in 2016 when rules stopped players moving on loan once the transfer window closed. Um, add to that the fact that you can only play for, for two teams in one particular season. And we've seen in recent weeks the Christian Doidge scenario with Bolton and Forest Green Rovers. Uh, I guess now even more attention to detail has to go into to where you place players on loan, particularly when it comes to, to sending young players out to clubs. Yeah, I think it's, it's so crucial. Um, I've been on the phone this morning to a club about a young player who... Um, you know, wants to go out alone, get some experience, and sort of the club are saying, "No, we we would only prefer him to go here or here." And you're kind of saying, "Well, I think he should go to this club because actually it suits him better." And okay, the other club might be higher in the the league, but the, the point of going alone is to play football. There's no point going to a club to be in the same situation you are now. So it's something we we really look into. It's probably the most difficult part of our job to try and find that opportunity. You then find the opportunity and then there's always the difficulty of the wages because the club that's taken them are saying they're developing someone else's player. So sometimes don't want to pay the, the full wages. Then the club that are loaning them out are saying, well, no, you're taking our player, you pay for the full amount of wages. Then you have, if you're you know, relocating, you're playing for a, a player who's not going to want to go and buy a house or rent a house where they might be there for six months. You know, the, the the club needs to pay for that. So then the club that's loaning them are normally lower down. They've got to then fit accommodation, wages, bonuses, etc. into a budget. It's um, it's a lot more complicated than what people think. Just, oh, he's gone on loan there to play football. Mm. You then also have a, a, a situation where a club might be looking for a striker. So we had one in, in January, um, so a year ago now. Um, our young player needed to go on loan. He was on the periphery of the first team, but for his benefit, he needed to go on loan and play games whether it's to be in the shop window for other teams to want to sign him the year after, or whether it's to show his parent club that he's good enough to play in their first team. So we had a few options for him. He's a League One player. There was options for him to go to League Two on loan. The whole window, his club wouldn't let him go until they signed another striker. And then with, I think, five hours to go before the deadline on the last day of January, they phoned us and said, oh, we've signed our striker now. What options do you have? Of which none of the options we did have were still available because they'd signed all they'd all signed players themselves. Um but then the power of Twitter and networks and relationships, I saw that one team who wanted a player, they'd missed out on him to someone else. So we phoned them and said, look, 
you need a striker, we've got you a striker. They said, we don't know anything about him. And I said, well, you do because you've signed another player from his club. So if you've done match reports on the other player that you've signed, you'll have match reports right. on him. Go and do the research. I promise you he's better than the one that you've signed anyway. So if you've signed him, you'll sign our one. They phoned us back 10 minutes later and said, get him down to the training ground now, we'll sign him on loan. He went and played 13 times for them towards the end of the season. And then now he's back in his parent club. He's then playing for them. He's then got a new contract because he's gone into pre-season very confident, knowing that he can play men's football. He's then got in the first team. He's part of the 14, 15 men that play nearly every single week. He's got a new contract as a reward. And for us, that's incredible value that we've added to his career. And we've got a very strong relationship with him and his family because we could have just sat there and gone, well, there's five hours left of the window. Nothing's going to happen now. But for us, you don't stop until... The last, you know, till Jim White's on telly going, that's it, deadline's yeah. gone. We were both sat in our carts and we'd been at different clubs doing different deals after a long window where there is no days off whatsoever. There's no such thing as a weekend in, in the transfer window. Um, and like I said, there was five out. We thought we were done. We thought we had everything sorted. And then we get that phone call. And I remember both of us sat in our cars at different ends of the country going, right, let's just hit the phone, hit the phone. But now Phil said, I've just seen this on Twitter. Right, okay, let's get this done. You speak to the club that potentially want him, I'll speak to the parent club, let's get the deal done and, and we got it done and like I said then you know, a year later he's he's now playing, doing great. His career's jumped to another level, he's got himself a nice new contract, so it it shows the benefits of what we're doing. That wasn't that's something that we've added to his career financially, it's not made any difference to our lives because we think that further down the line is where we'll see all the rewards because it's about a young player gaining his stuff in in his career. I say to the young players now, I mean, it's different when I played, a lot of players were like, oh, I need to do this because I need to get this new contract to earn this money. I think the young the money's in the football now. So I say to the young players, if you concentrate and do things right, go on loan, work hard and training, do the basics right, all the rest will come. Mm. I think if you focus on, oh, he's got a better car than me, he's got more expensive trainers, he's got a nicer wash bag, you'll fall by the wayside. But if you just concentrate on the football, you'll be able to buy what you want. Um, it's not about you know having these boots or I'm um, getting this or going to concerts. It's about playing football and then you can do what you want. I suppose it's tough when you're a young man though in a young man's game. It's kind of <laughs> that's the mentality, isn't it? You look mm. at the car next to you in the car park or whatever. But yeah, in terms of the sort of how a deal's sort of structured on on a loan, then if you're a youngster at a Premier League club, you're presumably still on a fairly decent wage if you're in a Premier League club. So if you're going out on loan to League One or, or League Two, what sort, sort of percentages are you talking in terms of wages? So I think it very much depends on the relationship of the two clubs. So you might have, everyone talks about feeder teams or B teams and things that you've got abroad, but here there is nothing like that because there's no structure like English football in terms of going from the Premier League down to the conference and still having full-time football. And you'd see that from the FA Cup, the competitiveness of the Cup, you've got all these different levels of teams that will still, you can send players out and get real competitive football under their belt. So I think from the Premier League down, I think it's slightly different with the Premier League players because the Premier League know they've got assets. They've spent a lot of money either signing these players from young, from other clubs, or just developing them all the way through their system. And to them, they know, if you look at the Chelsea model, they know they can sign players, send them out on loan two or three times and then sell them on as assets because they have done that well. So... It's very much dependent on the relationship between the parent club and the loaning club as to whether they allow them to go and pay either 0% or 100% of the wages. Um, but then these days what's been made a lot more popular or well-known is the penalty clauses. So 
there's a, an incentive for someone to play the player, the club will say, you only have to pay 30%, 40%, 50% of the wages if he plays every week because we're then getting the value added to our player. If you don't play them, you might have to play. You might have to pay 100% of the wages or they might have different penalty clauses based on the percentage of games they, pay, they play. Then at the end of the season, they tally up how many games they've played and they say, right, here's a bill for X amount because he's only hit 50% of the games or 60% yeah. of the games, yeah. I find that a bit of a weird one, only because I've seen a couple of players go out on loan in the past who just bombed and just not, not been ready to go down into the lower leagues. And it's mm. like, so you leave them out of the team because they don't deserve to be in the team, but you're actually paying more money. It seems, seems a weird concept. Yeah. And it's probably something you're going to come on to, but it's, that's where the recruitment comes in. And the recruitment's key. And you're not going to get everyone right. It's impossible to get everyone right. But the recruitment, they, they've got to be ready to, you know, really put, push the button and say, yeah, 100%, he is ready to come on loan. In terms of the recruitment side of things then, you've been studying for, what is it, a master's? There's a master's in sport directorship at Manchester Met University. Um, so I'm on cohort four, um, which I didn't know what the word cohort meant, but everyone talks <laughs> about it all the time. But So I'm the, I'm the fourth year of doing the course. Um, you've had people that have, have done year one. Um, you've got people now at Manchester United Academy, or the academy manager at Man United was doing my course. Um, you've got... Um, current and previous managers of football clubs that are doing the course, um, ex-players, um, people from different sports. It's not just about football. So on my course, you've got people from all different sports that work in talent ID, and they might work on more of the commercial side of the business, or they might work in um, just different areas of the club, or people even outside of sport that work in really high-powered jobs that they could easily uh, replicate their skill set into football. Because as you go higher up the the hierarchy in football clubs is not just about football, it's very much about business. So if you learn more about the, the governance of sport, um, leadership skills that you'll need in order to lead teams but within a sporting environment, um, or even creativity and innovation in terms of how you can take, you know, if you go to Manchester City last night, we were at Manchester City against Burton in the, the Carabao Cup semi-final, and you just look at the, the spectacle of Manchester City, it's not just about the, the players on the pitch, you look at even now these days, the gifts when someone scores a goal on the, the big screen and um, the colours and the vibrancy of um, the, the, the round-the-pitch advertising and the screens and how the teams are announced. It, it's such a spectacle now. And, and, you know, boxing in the old days wasn't very fashionable. Now boxing is such an incredible event to go to. And I think football kind of learns from that in terms of pyrotechnics and the lighting. And you go there and it's not just about the football, but it makes people feel like they're getting... I would say getting more value for money because people, you know, these days it's even more publicised how expensive football is. But I think football clubs realise there needs to be more put into it. So from a from my master's degree perspective, I've got a maybe a vested interest in, in structures of clubs and directors of football. But what I find difficult is and maybe doing the course, I've understood it a little bit more, but is... I think in the old days when you have someone would say you can't appoint a director of football in an English football club because you have the manager that does all the recruitment. So everyone thinks a director of football's role is recruitment. But actually, if you look at the, the, the true term would be a sporting director. And in Europe, it was more coined because if you have Barcelona, for instance, they have lots of different sports within or under the Barcelona badge. They might have a Barcelona basketball team. Um, so you have a sporting director that was totally in control of the sport. So in football, in England, it's more, oh yeah, it's recruitment, but it's not. It's a sporting director that can sit on the board. They can report to the owner or the other board members about the, the sports science department, the recruitment department, um, the groundsman, the medical staff, every possible part that, that kind of is encompassed within the sporting club, they would be in control of. 
But now realising when I'm doing my course, you might have people that are a director of football, head of football operations. Um, there's lots of different terms that, depending on their title, they might do slightly different things. So from an agent perspective, the most important thing is to know about decision makers. Decision making is the, the most vital thing. So you could be speaking to someone who you think has a certain title and has certain power at a club, which you obviously we talked about on the previous pod, I think it was, about... Um, you might be speaking to someone you think they are the person that's going to sign my player and it gets to the end of the transfer window and literally nothing's happened and you've seen they've signed someone else and then you realise that they didn't have the power at that football club. So you need to make sure decision-making, you might have a, like I said, a, a, a manager-led football club, he might have his kind of more traditional chief scout, but he's the man, the eyes and ears, he, he really trusts him. So if he spots a player and he's the one that he feels will make a difference to the manager, the manager might go with his player. Whereas if you've got a director of football, a chief scout, you might have a head of recruitment as well. You've got all these different voices and opinions and no one's right or wrong, but it's very much as Brian said about, at the end of the day, the manager puts his neck on the line. He has to put that team out on a Saturday or midweek and if they lose, he's the one that might potentially lose his job. So you have to make sure that you're trying to get someone to, to, to have the best decision-making process in order to sign your player. How many manager-led clubs are there really these days? Because if you've seen the, I don't know if you've seen the Sunderland documentary, Sunderland Till I Die, and there's you see Deadline Day, which we're going to talk about Deadline Day in the next pod, but, but you see Martin Bain very much at the, the forefront of, of the deals there. Simon Grayson wanted to get Ross McCormick over the line, kept saying he needed a striker. They didn't get it over the line. He gets sacked about a month or two later. And of course, the manager cops the flack when things don't go right, but recruitment is everything really, isn't it? Yeah, we were in meetings yesterday and we met um, a head of recruitment of a, an up-and-coming club and we said this recruitment's key. Right throughout the levels, it's, it's becoming more and more important and I think I watched something the other night and there were some ex-players and coaches and managers on there and they were saying that if they went back into management or were going to get into management, they would insist on having a director of football or a sporting director because they need to manage the team. They need to prepare the team for the next game the games come thick and fast, especially in the, in the Championship League, one league, two um, national league, um, and then for the top level as well. You're playing in Europe, you know, so they need to be concentrating next game. Now the other players are ready. So when it comes to recruitment, they need direct sporting directors, need head of recruitments, you need chief executives, you need chairmen that are, are on the ball and say, this is the way we play. I want these sort of these are the sort of the each player what I want in each each position, and you say. Right, go and find me two or three players that will fit our the way we play, and then once two or three come in, I'll then make a decision from there. But I'm concentrating on coaching the team, and then you go and find me the players. Does the manager generally still have the final say, though, or does it come down to the director of football or head of recruitment? I think different dynamics at different football clubs. Our job then to find out, like you said, who do you talk to? Um, we have different relationships at different football clubs, uh, and it might be well, our our job is to find the answer out yes or no, as quickly as possible. Um, nothing is done quickly in football. Um, as you know, we, We're getting to know uh, very quickly. You kind of just want an answer. So if we, need, we have an assistant manager, if we know the manager, if we know the director of football, if we know the head of recruitment, you ask whoever you can get the quickest answer from and then you move forward, move to the next one. And we keep saying, well, what's the worst they can say is no. What I always find a bit weird in football, I suppose, is that as I said before, like the manager always cops the flack, don't they? But you never hear a manager come out and say, well, actually, you know, we, we landed up with our fifth choice striker or something, or the, the recruitment department threw up the wrong player there. But, you know, a lot more goes into it than, than the actual manager, than maybe the public sort of see a lot of the time. I think that, again, it, we talk about structures and, and 
relationships at football clubs and, and I'd probably say that Brentford would be a really good example in terms of how the structure is and exactly what you've just said. I think they're, they're owned by Matthew Benham who's got a, um, a betting odds company um, and a lot of recruitment or especially talent ID is done through the statistical data that they have. Everyone, I think fans and people within football understand that and can see that. So I think if a manager were to sign a player at Brentford, they would know that it's not necessarily... I wouldn't say that it's not his decision, but they would understand where the data's come from and why it's led to, for them to, to make that decision. And I think in football, the biggest issue is that decision-making processes are never really very transparent. Whereas with Brentford, they sign a player, Konstantin Kirschbaumer, and I love saying his name because I right. can always say it right as well. <laughs> um, with the statistical data that they had, Konstantin Kirschbaumer was a, a complete anomaly in terms of his statistical analysis uh, from his outputs in terms of his goals and assists that he got. And he was playing in Europe in a Austrian or German third division, I think. But his statistical data matched those of Ozil and other people. So he was a complete outlier. So they signed him because of that. He didn't do as well as maybe the data allowed. But it was also it's, it's in terms of the competition that he's in. He came to England and did all right. But I think he's now moved over to Europe again and he's doing really well. But I think sometimes if you can see why they've signed someone... You can then understand, OK, it didn't work out, but we can see why they signed him. He's gone back somewhere else and now he's doing well. I think with football, there's so much there's so much feedback you can get all the time. Everything is so instant. If a player doesn't do well on a Saturday, you're on the radio, phone-ins, you're on Twitter. Players can get tagged on Twitter. They can get abuse held at them all the time. Fans can get quite angry about it, but the more transparency there is, I think the more people accept things. And, and we've got contacts now in terms of people then analysts on Twitter people that have just learnt a lot they might have used their skills from outside of football but then applying that to football and they're analysing a lot of data and I think now fans are becoming a lot more informed before it used to be everyone got labelled with oh you're just you know you play football manager it's not real but I think now football's become a little bit more like the American sports Moneyball made it quite famous but people can tell very much go down to the nth degree of how many aerial jewels someone won and you know the win ratios of someone playing or not and you know Billy Sharp's a great example of every time he scores a goal for Sheffield United they haven't lost in 50 odd games or whatever something like that so there's so much information out there that I think fans are becoming a bit more accepting with it Um, but then you just need to be able to see I think the more transparency the better and I think a director of football then protects the club more because then they can see that if you, if you picture like a penny farthing in terms of a big wheel and a small wheel, like Brian said, the manager has the small wheel. He has to manage day to day and it goes very, very fast. And the big wheel is something that takes a lot longer and things you have to go, like you can use the, the term periodization. You need to look from each transfer window season to season, look at the young players that are coming through, the players that are going to be coming out of contract and look at that process. And they can protect that manager from that. And I think managers really becoming a lot more informed to the fact that a director of football isn't there to be a threat. He's very much there to be a support because everything has to be a lot more instant. So if he gets sacked in six months, the club can still go, we've got the ethos of how we play. We're going to recruit someone to match the players and the system we've got in place. And you hopefully just carry on that process. I think this great example recently is the, the Luton. You know, mm. They bring in a, a midfielder to fit the way they play. A day later, the manager goes. Mm. So then they go, well, we've got this group of players now. We now need to bring a manager in that kind of fits the club, not just a, a manager that go, oh, he's got great experience, he's got a great track record. Oh, but how does he play? He plays four four two with two big strikers, uh, plays it long and, and plays off the front. Go, so, well, actually, Luton play technical players through the midfield, get it wide, or yeah, however they play. So even from the recruitment now of management 
like you said, the, the director of football, the chief execs now recruit a coach or head coaches now you call it and the managers and you know, we might have a call from um, a head coach or manager and say, We want to sign your player, will he come? God, he'd love to come to your club, he wants to play. Okay, talk to my financial director, talk to my head of recruitment, talk to the chief exec and get the deal done. So the manager thinks the deal's done. Then you go to the the financial director, right, this is what it'll take to buy him from the club, this is his current salary, this is what it'll take to come. That's, well, we can't do that. And then the manager says, well, why is the deal not done? Well, we can't agree it. And so there's so many different moving parts in the transfer that it's not as easy anymore as a manager phones a player and go, I want, want to sign for you, do you want to come to me? Yeah, of course. So there's so many different parts that people probably don't see from the outside. On the reverse to that then, if you ever have players who are manager or a director of football, etc., has approached you to sign, but you know that they're not the type of player that will fit in with that system at all. But it's like, well, they're interested in my player, so I guess we'll do the deal. Yeah, well, I think we've, we've, we've had this situation a couple of times and we've said, this isn't right, it's not the right time to do the deal, it doesn't fit in. And it goes back to what you were saying so about the stat stuff. With some, if you sign a player off, off stats and go, oh, he's brilliant, he's got all these stats, but all of a sudden, you're not going to fit into that dressing room. You're not going to get on well with that manager because we just know you're going to clash. And then, you know, that some have turned it down, some deals have happened, and six months later, you say, I told you so, um, which we've had on a few occasions. So you have got to try and fit all those balances right and, and try and get the transfer right. Again, recruitment-wise for us, we've got to recruit a, a player to go to the right club or a club to, to bring to our player. Um, and sometimes we get it wrong as well. We had one instance where... There was a player that statistically was unbelievable. People used to go and watch him play, and instead of thinking, these are all the things he can do, they look at the things he can't do. But he only couldn't do them because he was in a team that played a certain way, so he had to fit and use his ability to fit as best he could in that system. We felt he was far better than the level he was at. Um, We just got him as a client. We were able to potentially move him to a higher division, but he didn't particularly want to go to that team. Um, We felt... Our job is to kind of give opinions and give advice, as we've always said. Our advice was we think this is the best move in terms of the best level you're going to get to, the best earning potential you're going to get to, and therefore we'd advise you to do it if if the kind of the, the picture that you've painted to us is we need to move you to a higher level, this is it and this is the best situation we're going to get. He said to us, look lads, and he's a great lad, he said, look lads, not being funny, I don't want to go there, but I've got every faith in you that you're going to deliver. So we then, me and Brian chat, and we're like, well... That's really good that he's got the confidence in us, but I don't know where we're going to get another club from. And then we spoke to a club in his own division who was much better in terms of the budget and the opportunities they had to progress. And, uh, and vision, really. And, yeah, the, the vision, vision that we had and yeah, he had, yeah. The vision and the culture that the club have set out and also the system that they play, he would fit perfectly. But we never even thought that that was an opportunity. One, because they're in the same division, but two, the the picture that was painted was that to get him to a different division. So when we then started looking at assessing it, we felt actually, this is a brilliant opportunity for him. And we were able to deliver the move. Everyone was very happy in terms of the selling club, the buying club, the player. And he's then gone on and progressed and done really, really well. And he's actually progressed further than the club he would have gone to. Last transfer window in, in January, we, came, we coined the phrase uh, false deadlines. And I think in football, everyone comes up with pressure, pressure, pressure. Everything has to be done at 100 miles an hour. And if everyone's applying that pressure to you, the manager, the chairman, the chief exec, the the director of football, the chief scout, the buying club, the selling club, the player, there's a hell of a lot of people that are all going, we need to get this done. But that kind of applies false deadlines to things. So you think we have to get it done by Friday because they have to play on Saturday. They have to win that game because otherwise the manager's under pressure. Everyone's got their own vested interest and, and own selfish aims as to why they need to get something done. 
Our job is 100% to protect the player in that situation. So you can only do it if it's right for the player. So we came up with this thing of false deadlines to say, actually, wait a minute, this is a false deadline here. We don't need to rush. The only deadline we need to worry about is the last day in the transfer window. Up until that point, if it's not right for the player, it's not right for us and we need to pre- protect the player from that. Do you think the transfer window's fair? Do you think it helps kind of with stability? Because I'm just looking at, say, Notts County this season, already sat two different managers. You know, you get players, you go in there under one manager, you know, naturally, new manager comes in and they're going to want to sort of start to build their own team. And you know, particularly with this two players per season, per club, you know, we've got the Christian Doidge scenario I referenced at the beginning. Started the season, played a couple of games at Forest Green, goes to Bolton. That doesn't, you know, it can't go through for reasons totally beyond his control. He's back at Forest Green Rovers now and he can't move until the summer. So do you think like rules like that, you know, hinder, particularly from a player's development, I think it, it seems to me like it hinders a player's progress, really. Uh, yeah, I think the three club rule or the two club rule, for example, I think that that could be harsh. And people seem to look at all these rules in, in different ways. And, and sometimes we phone the FA and we phone, you know, the, the governing bodies, for example, and say, can this happen? Because, you know, there was there's one come out last few days. Can you play for an under 23 side and two other sides? Mm. Um, and I think it's a, a player's just gone to a club that has played for already another club and a 23 so it proves that that one's out the window but again there's there's still a grey area on it I think there's grey area on all, and I think with the Deutsch one that's a special circumstance I mean and they should look at it for the selling club because they should really have got the money that they've invested in, and turned you know a, a player into a better player so they should be rewarded and that gets invested back into the football club and helps the football club grow the player who was promised his contract, which was probably life-changing money for him, he's gone and bought a house and mm. his family and moved his family away. So I think the, the FA maybe with that one and other cer- certain circumstances like that should look at it and go, hang on, that we need to look after the players here. And this one, because of, of what's happened, he maybe should be able to you know, play for another club because he, let's think of the selling club and let's think of the player. Mm. I think also the... For me, though, I do think transfer windows work. I think it, 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 it very much buys into long-term planning of clubs. I think if the transfer window wasn't there and a the manager is under pressure all the time and managers last less than a year now, if they, if they don't have a transfer window, every single week they'd be looking to try and trade players. So I think it very much says, look, the August window's done, you've got your squad, work with them. If you've got injuries, bring a player in, a young player from your academy to give him a chance. And I think if the transfer window wasn't there, they just keep trying to sign and, and churn over different players. I think in terms of the, being able to play for two clubs but being registered for three, I think where that, that should change is where the, the biggest issue is where a player starts a pre-season at Club A, he does pre-season, he plays a few games, the manager says, look, I'm going to give you a chance to try and get in the team, see if you're part of my plans. He plays a couple of games. We've had quite a few instances where they don't play in the first team in the league because the manager's not sure. He'll play them in the first round of the League Cup which yeah. happens before the, the end of the transfer window. Maybe he does well, maybe he doesn't, but the manager goes, look, you're still not part of my plans. So then before the end of the deadline in August, you move him to Club B, he goes there, the manager might get sacked halfway through the first half of the season, a new manager comes in and goes, no, you're not for me, mate, I'm not interested, you can move. You get to January, but he's already played for Club A and Club B, he can't go and play for Club C because he's not allowed to play for three clubs in one season. So he could be signed by Club C in the January, but he can't play for them until the summer. Where the rules then are a little bit grey is where if you're in the league, you can actually go to the non-league, so the conference downwards, because they don't have transfer windows and they don't 
adhere so much to the FIFA rules of transfer windows. So if a player really desperately wants to go and play football and wants to be in the shop window or literally will go stir crazy if he's not playing for six months or as we've said before, it's not six months but you know three, yeah. four, five months, he can go on loan to the non-league and play. But that's an incredible restraint of trade for me that if a player's in the Championship or League One, League Two or the Premier League, whatever, if they're not playing football, why should they have to go to a, a level that is a lot lower than where they feel that their ability is? I think sometimes it works for younger players because they can go on loan to the conference for a month, do really well, come back and actually play for their parent club. But for a lot of instances, I think it's a huge restraint of trade to, to stop players being able to go somewhere else. So I think I think you should be able to play for three clubs because then you play for your parent club at the beginning of the window in the summer and then two more after that. Or maybe like five games for your parent club at the start of the yeah, season yeah. or something so they can see you and then decide after that or something. Yeah, yeah or maybe not count after the, the summer window or yeah. anything that happens yeah. in, that, in that summer window. That doesn't count. Yeah. And you've also got the one with the, the goalkeeper situation where you can go on an emergency loan. So we, we had a goalkeeper who had played in a cup for you know, so you know, Club A. Club B needed an emergency goalie to come in and play. But then the goalkeeper wanted to go potentially on or to another club in January. So we said, well, will that emergency loan then count as two clubs? We spoke to a few different government bodies and it was, we're not sure. The emergency loan didn't happen because we had to, obviously we don't want to potentially ruin anything that could happen in January or, or further down the line. So again, there's still grey areas um, about these emergency loans and the two, three club rule. The biggest grey area, I suppose, is like Brian said, a player played for an under-23 side for his parent club He's been on loan already in the first half of the season and he's just moved again in this window. So it shows that you can play for a 23s team in your, mm. if your parent club and play for two others. However, the grey area that gets even worse is where you can look at historical situations such as Hatem Ben Arfa um, and also Nathaniel Chalaba because they both played for, I think Ben Arfa must have been at Newcastle, played for his 23 side, had gone on loan um, in the first half of the season but then wanted to go to France in the second half of the season. And because you're then looking at the FIFA rules, FIFA say you can't play for two teams, or you can't play for more than two teams. And they counted the 23s as playing for a, 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 in a competitive like a match. trade trophy or something, yeah, was it? Yeah, and yeah. then Nathaniel Chalibur was the same. He played for Chelsea in an under-23 side, been on loan to Burnley, I think, in the first half of the season, and then wanted to go somewhere else. I think, again, he was going to go to Bordeaux or something in France. And again, he couldn't do it. So I think we're quite fortunate in England because we've got the, the FA and the Football League very much... They do as much as they can to protect the players. So it's very hard because the pressure is then put on the agent or the agent might get blamed for saying, well, he's played for his 23 side and he's played for another team on loan. You know, it's your fault because he didn't get another loan move. The club, you know, he wasn't allowed to. But it's very much beyond your power, really, to, to predict. So as Brian said, we speak to a lot of different regulatory bodies to make sure we, we do as much homework before we do a move to make sure that we've got enough information to try and support the player if he needed to do something. Because another mad one I remember a couple of years ago when, when the kind of rules first came in was sort of a free agent. If you get released by your club after the transfer window, I think it was Dean Cox at Leighton Orient. And he was meant to go to Northampton. It fell through. They had the mad Italian owners at the time. So had to kind of go and play local football for three, four months until he could actually sign for Crawley in the January. He said, but in what's a, such a short career, that's sort of four months of your career wasted isn't yeah, it yeah and that's why you see on certain transfer windows you'll see it get into the last few hours and you'll see people cancelling their contracts because they want to move they've not been able to get a move in time the club they have potentially wants them out so they cancel their contracts and say right well I'm now a free agent and then the first week in February or first week in September or the first week after the transfer window shuts I then can go and look at moving because 
like you said, the the deadline or the false deadline you've you've not actually hit of of moving. And before we go, because I know you've probably got about 15 voicemails just in this one podcast, uh, I just wanted to talk a little bit about academy pathways as well, because, um, you know, on the subject of loans, particularly teams are appointing loan managers now. Yes, I think what clubs are realising is that whether the player's going to come through their academy and represent the first team, or they're coming through the academy and, you know, going and getting a career elsewhere, it's very much a club realising that they're kind of guardians of these players. So they've come through the academy from maybe eight, nine years old. They get to 16 and get a scholarship. They get a pro at 18. They can get they can get different contracts at different times, but that's kind of the main pathway. And if a team's looking at it and saying, well, we've spent X amount of money developing this player. He's the one player out of 500 or whatever that's kind of made it through the scholarship and then getting a pro. From a business perspective, they should look to try and recoup some money because it's a, commu- it's a community basis, but also from a business perspective, they're investing a lot of money in that. So the other flip side is, yes, it's business, but it's also a moral thing. If they're trying to help someone get a career, if they're not getting a career at their own football club, they should try and help them get a career elsewhere. So having a loan manager is, again, it's having someone that's very much specifically there, responsible for sourcing loan opportunities at the right level for the player to go on loan. And then also they could maybe negotiate the wages or it might go up to the chief exec or the director of football, depending on the structure. Um, But you then... They make sure that they're monitoring their progress. Are they playing every week? Are they not playing every week? If they get injured, is the parent club making sure they get enough medical support? Or do they bring them back to the parent club to get the, the physiotherapy and then send them back out when they're fit again? Um, but I think it's a, it's a brilliant progressive step because, again, football clubs are looking at it and saying, I think Arsenal at one point had the most amount of players that had graduated through their academy playing in the top flight. Didn't mean that they had to play for Arsenal, but... For me, that's a, a brilliant testament to, to Arsene Wenger at the time because he was bringing players through, blooding them in the League Cup. They either pl- did well or didn't, but then they went out and played at different clubs. And I think, for me, that's if you look at it from how important football is in life, they've got a huge responsibility to, to help support these players as much as possible. And I think from a sort of player's perspective, if I was a, a young player, for example, at Southampton, mm. and I was under 23 and I went on loan to Sunderland, and I'm living all the way up there, my family's down south, the teammates and the club that I know that I grew up with is how many ever 100 miles away I'm now up in Sunderland I'm stuck in a hotel on my own I'm a young player so I'm not really in with all the other players and they've got families and doing different things the loan manager comes to see me play he comes to watch me he's on the phone he's making sure I'm alright so I know that if I'm in a hotel on my own I've got someone I can pick the phone up to if I've got a worry that I'm out on loan and oh I might not get a chance back at Southampton you want to know that the loan manager is watching you and saying look you're doing really well we, we like you doing this. I think you can do this better. I've spoke to the Sunderland manager or wherever you're at. Yeah, he thinks you've settled in quite well or you've not settled in well. He thinks you can do this. I think it's just nice for a player to, to know you've got that support network with you from your parent club. I've heard a few clubs, uh, people talk, have discussions recently. I don't know your view on this about first loans and how clubs only really get the benefit from a player maybe when they're on their second or third loan. That first loan is almost to give them that cultural experience of being around a first-team dressing room and first-team competitive environment. Does that sort of come into the consideration that there are certain clubs that you look at and think, for a first loan, they're the most appropriate team to put a player into? Um, I'm not too sure. Probably there is some, but it's one of those where we speak to a lot of clubs and say, text player on loan, trust us, trust us, text player on loan. Oh, it's his first loan, a bit of a gamble. They go there and they smash it on their mm. first loan. And then they say, oh, can we have him now? Oh, no, because now he's going to the next level or he's back at his parent club playing. Okay, and then from that, they go, oh, have we got any other players? Oh, we'll take him next time. But it's just, again, it's the recruitment, knowing the players. We're forcing it as much as possible to take this player because we believe in them. And again, it's 
obviously we've got to do our job but if we didn't believe in the player we wouldn't f- try and force a club to take them knowing that they wouldn't be right to go to because the next time you pick up the phone they go wait oh the player you gave us last time wasn't up to scratch we're not taking another player of yours so I think again it comes down to recruitment and especially for our players and trying to get my loan so our relationships with clubs knowing that it'll be the right loan and again looking at going that club's probably not right they, they've come in for you alone but you're not going to play there you're going to be in and out you're going to sit on the bench they've got seven loan players they can only have five in the squad so yeah you're going to be up against it here you're a certain type of player that you know, might be in and out. So it's got a, you've got to look at all different avenues and, and how it all develops. Mm. I think also you look at levels and it's all right looking at players that go on loan somewhere and go, oh, he got this move to the championship on loan. He's not played. So the next loan he gets, he's then got to try and play football again. Whereas if you take him maybe to the League One and he goes and plays and hits the ground running, I think MK Dons were brilliant with that under Carl Robinson. He signed Benikafobi, he got him to League One. He absolutely smashed it, scored a bundle of goals and his career then... We really cracked on. Patrick Bamford was the same. Will Grigg was the same. So when you look at it, you look at it and go, what is a loan for? If it's for an older player, he might not be playing at the moment. So therefore, he needs to go out and just get some games to try and convince the manager to play him back at his, his parent club. Or if it's for a younger player, it's to go and play football. But then at the same time, if he goes and plays football and plays every single game, that might be great as a first loan. But then when he gets another move or he goes back to his parent club and he stops playing football, mentally he might not realise the trials and tribulations of why he's not playing and he has to then deal with that. Whereas if he goes to a, a loan club, he's in and out and the manager dips him in and out. And if he's a young player, they go through different form levels of form because they're young and, and you can't stay consistent all the time. So a manager might dip him in and out, he might give him two, three games, do really well, take it, put him on the bench for the next one, bring him on for 30 minutes, deal with all those different kind of confidence issues they might go through or work it out mentally in their head. And when they've ended up with that loan, they might have played 10, 15 games in the first half of the season. They might have been dropped. They might have not played. They might have had a, an absolute brilliant performance, one man of the match, all these different things. And all of a sudden, you look at the, the linear kind of route that a footballer wants and they all think that they're going to start kind of at the bottom and just rise to the top in a very straight line. Whereas it's not, there's loads of peaks and troughs and the more you can do to give them the most real world experience of those dips in confidence and, and even feeling elated because they've done so well, all of a sudden they come out of a six-month loan incredibly well prepared to then go back to their parent club or then move up levels, as Brian says, or even the club says, now look, he's at the top of his game now, he's not going to play in our first team, we'll now sell him. And then again it goes into the selling, do we sell him on a, do we just let him go on a free transfer with a huge sell-on because we know he's going to continue to progress and or is it he's actually done that well that now we can sell him for a lot of money and cash in? So again, there's so many different things that go into the melting pot of every single different recruitment decision, really. Yeah, and I think for a young player to go on loan and you, know, you go from playing in 23s football where it might be a £100 win bonus and you know you, you go and you knock the ball around and you just try to develop, you're playing with your mates that you've grown up playing in a youth team with, so then dropping down to a League 2, League 1 side where it's the, the win bonus is a bit more, the appearance money is more. That win bonus is a senior player that's played at that level his whole career. There's a big difference that month in his salary. If you make a mistake and give the ball away, that costs them the game. You're then getting hammered by the player. You might give the ball away, it costs a goal. You're then getting hammered on social media by the fans. Getting on the bus, you might hear something from a fan where you know you give the ball away in the 23. He's nothing's really said. You know, it's, okay, try it again, get on the ball again. All of a sudden, it's real world. Mm. It's massive for a player, sort of mentally, and, and that kind of goes back to having the loan managers and you know us as well. For you know, you've got to pick up the phone and say, well, this is a real world of football. It's not not always just a bubble. It's also then our job before we're sending players out to explain how things work and what they're going to experience because then 
when things happen, they go, oh yeah, Phil said that, or Brian said that. I understand why that's happening. And it might even be, they go into a club on loan, the manager might be under a little bit of pressure and then he's hammering the players in training and or he might see him as the first person who walks down the corridor and he has a go at the player and the player thinks, what have I done wrong? Like I didn't even play on Saturday. And then it, he internalises that all week to think that he's done something wrong. Where actually the manager might have been you know, told off by the chief exec to say, look, we need to get two or three results or you're out the door here. So it's about us explaining that a lot of the times things happen. Everyone's got someone else they have to report to. It's not necessarily you as an individual that's done anything wrong, but it's just dealing about being able to say, actually, you know what, you deal, you can control what you can control and the stuff that you can't control, don't worry about it because it's completely out of your your decision-making process, really. And that's where an agent's role goes kind of beyond just being an agent, I say, in sort of inverted commas there, because it is, you know, you are the counsellor, if you like, the sort of the mentor, in, in Brian's case, an ex-player, I suppose, as well. Yeah, you've got to kind of give it all, all the dynamics and all the knowledge. I think that's why we work well. You know, Phil's growing up with football. I've obviously gone through my career. So we've got the experiences. We've got the highs and lows, the knockbacks. And, you know, not just the loans. There's, there's young players now that, you know, might be told they're not getting a new contract at the club and, that's it, their world's ending. But actually, no, look, you can't control that. What you can do is get your head down, work hard and find opportunities. So we're there. We're kind of a support network for everyone, really. Definitely. And I think if I go back to the player that I was talking about earlier, my first deal, Theo Robinson, he, I think, is still the best example or the he's been the most successful player from the exit trials. So he was at Stoke, I think. He's from Birmingham. He wasn't really in the academy system. He went to Stoke as an under-16 for six months got released, as a, um, so he didn't get a scholarship, got sent to the exit trials. Someone from Watford saw him and thought, oh, I quite like him, so Watford signed him. And he ended up making his Premier League debut, I think, against Newcastle as a substitute. Um, I then moved him to Huddersfield and then to Millwall and Derby. And within a few years, he'd ended up being top goal scorer, a joint top goal scorer in the championship for Derby under Nigel Clough. So you can see being able to sell stories like that to people. And, and through my course, actually, at, at university, my master's degree, um, one of the most favourite journals I've got or what I learned about was storytelling and the role of storytelling within business. And the great thing is, is that I love analogies anyway, but being able to understand that actually if you're you're able to tell a story to someone to explain how someone else has experienced something and how they're not the first person that's going through this experience, I think it's a huge comfort for them to realise, oh, actually that happened before someone got released, but now he's here. And you go through the details as how they've got there, the hard work that they've put in and I think it, it just helps people understand that if it's possible for someone else, it's possible for them as well. Absolutely. Transfer deadline day is fast approaching, which seems appropriate to take us for podcast three. We'll bring that to you next week. Fellas, as always, thanks a lot for, for episode two of the Transfers Pod. On Twitter, myself, at Cy underscore Watts, at Phil Corklin and at Momentum SM. If you like what you hear, we'll be back next week. In the meantime, leave us a review on iTunes.